This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges. For the week of September 14th through the 20th, covering 3rd Nephi chapters 8 through 11. My name is Kevin Tolley, and I will be your guest teacher today. I'm the Institute Director of the California Riverside Institutes and the co-author, along with my good friend Patrick Bishop, of Apostolic Succession in the Restoration, discussing the calls of all 102 members of the Quorum of the Twelve in this dispensation. I'm excited to be able to discuss this Come Follow Me lesson. These are some of the, the most exciting chapters in the Book of Mormon, but I'm sure there's arguments for others' chapters to be just as exciting. But I am very excited to be able to discuss these chapters, the coming of the Savior to the Nephites and his powerful teachings among those saints. Elder Neil A. Maxwell made this comment, The Book of Mormon will be with us as long as the earth shall stand. We need all that time to explore it, for the book is like a vast mansion, with gardens, towers, courtyards, and wings. There are rooms yet to be entered with flaming fireplaces waiting to warm us. The rooms glimpsed so far containing further furnishings and rich detail yet to be savored. Yet we as church members sometimes behave like hurried tourists, scarcely venturing beyond the entry hall. The first half of this statement is so true that the Book of Mormon has aspects yet to be explored. I hope the second part of Elder Maxwell, uh, Elder Maxwell's statement is becoming untrue as church members take time to explore the book. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at some of the details of chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and hopefully savor some of the doctrines and the principles being taught. As Jeff Benson made a comment that the book Mormon's written for our day, the Nephites never had the book, neither did the Lamanites of ancient times. It was meant for us. And the Book of Mormon contains a very interesting pattern that follows our day. As Mormon compiles his narrative, he specifically and strategically finds doctrines and principles that can help us in our day today. As we studied Come Follow Me throughout this year, and especially over the past few weeks, you might have noticed details that align with what is happening in the world today. And that's what makes this book so powerful, that we can uh, apply the principles into what is taking place. We can see the urgency of the message. President Benson continues, each of the major writers of the Book of Mormon testified that he wrote for future generations. If they saw our day and chose those things which would be of greatest worth to us, is not that how we should study the Book of Mormon? We should constantly ask ourselves, why did the Lord inspire Mormon or Moroni or Alma to include that in the record? What lesson can I learn that can, uh, uh, what lesson can I learn from that to help me live in, a, in this day and age? I encourage you to maybe stop this podcast periodically and write down a note or two. Maybe as you ponder the Book of Mormon, to go slowly. Find something that you want to share with somebody else. Well, let's jump into chapter 8 of 3 Nephi. This is, a, this is a very logical break in the story. In the 1830 edition of, uh, of the Book of Mormon, this was chapter 4 of 3 Nephi. Chapter 4 of the 1830 edition covered chapters 8, 9, and 10. And you'll see that these were very specific breaks that were, um, that were designed to teach you something. There are some aspects that, uh, that repeat in this little small section. 
This section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, will discuss the destruction that occurred uh, just prior to the coming of the Savior among the Nephites and Lamanites, um, and it fulfills a prophecy that was foreshadowed clear back in the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Zenos testified in 1 Nephi chapter 19.11, he, he was quoted as saying this, For thus saith the prophet, The Lord surely shall visit all the house of Israel at that day, some with his voice because of the righteousness, unto the great joy and salvation, and others with thunderings and the lightnings of his power, by tempests and by fire, and by smoke and vapors of darkness, and by the opening of the earth, and by mountains which shall be carried up. Zenas testified and was quoted as testifying clear back in the small plates that this day would come. At the end of this small section in 3 Nephi chapter 10, verse 16, Mormon wants to point you back to the, these verses. And, and he says, doesn't Zenas testify that this would take place? I love these verses because it shows two ways in which God uh, motivates us. Sometimes with a still, small voice, a gentle nudge. But sometimes his motivation comes with thunderings, lightnings, and the earth shaking. We will emphasize the latter part of that as we go through in 3 Nephi chapter 8. Verse 3 makes this comment. 3 Nephi chapter 8 verse 3. And the pe people began to look with great earnestness for the sign which had been given by the prophet Samuel, the Lamanite. Yea, for the time, for that, uh, for the time that there should be darkness for the space of three days, uh, over the face of the land. I'm sure there was uh, among the faithful an element of nervousness that this darkness was gonna come. This uh, nervousness might have been coupled with an element of excitement, knowing that what would come after that three days of darkness. They had already experienced, and many might have remembered, the time of light where the sun went down and it didn't get dark. Uh, this would have the opposite effect. But unfortunately, in verse 4, testifies that there was great doubtings and disputations. This is foreshadowing. The doubtings and disputations foreshadowed the what's happening. Uh, it will happen uh, physically out in the world. It parallels the, uh, the internal struggles that some are having. The date in verse 5 will be significant. It says, And it came to pass in the 34th year, in the first month of the fourth day of the month. Now, if their calendar system was anything like Jewish calendars, quite often the Jewish calendar would begin in the spring. This would parallel the time of Passover. Or possibly, uh, or no, not possibly, but literally the time when the Savior would be on the cross. 35 chapter uh, 10, verse 18, the conclusion of this little section will show that, uh, that the conclusion of this will happen at the end of the 34th year. So 35 chapter 8, verse 5 says it's the first month. 35 chapter 10, verse 18, it will be the end of the 34th year. At this beginning of the 34th year, according to verse number 6, there was great and terrible tempests. And there was terrible thunders insomuch that it did shake the whole earth, if it was about to divide asunder. Three cities are highlighted in, ch in chapter 8, and these cities will become significant. Look in verse number 8. And the city of Zarahemla did take fire. Verse number 9. Moroni, this fortified city, did sink into the depths of the sea, and the inhabitants were drowned. And then finally, in verse number 10, 
Moroniha, it says, The earth uh, was carried upon the city of Moroniha, for, this, for the place of the city there became a great mountain. These three cities become almost uh, a symbolic aspect of what's going to happen in the future. If you remember, in Doctrine and Covenants 84, verse 114, um, a warning was given out to three cities. The verse says, Nevertheless, let the bishop go into the city of New York and the city of Albany and also the city of Boston and warn the people of those cities with uh, the sound of the gospel, with a loud voice, and of the desolation, or excuse me, of the desolation and utter uh, abolishment which await them if they do reject these things. These three cities, New York, Albany, or Boston, are singled out uh, back in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants as cities that would be destroyed if they don't repent. Now, I would imagine that every city, <laughs> every wicked city, um, could hear this warning. Now, listen to this. In a book by N.B. Lundwall, Temples of the Most High, on page 97-98, records a sermon Wilford Woodruff gave in Logan, uh, at a conference in Logan on the 22nd of August of 1863. He refers back to Doctrine Covenants 84, 114, and refers back to the city of New York, Boston, and Albany. These three cities. He combines what will happen to these th three cities if they don't repent. Combining section 84, verses, verse 114, back to 3 Nephi, chapter 8, uh, chapter 8, verses 8, 9, and 10. Remember Zarahemla, Moroni, and Moroniha? He talks about a future day when major wicked cities had been destroyed. Uh, Elder Woodruff made this comment. You will say that it was in the day when the presidents Benson and uh, Mogan presided over us. That was before New York was destroyed by earthquake. It was before Boston was swept into the sea. Uh, the, by the sea, heaving itself beyond its bounds. It was before Albany was destroyed by fire. Yea, that time you will remember the scene of this day. Tre treasure them up and forget them not. The book uh, continues to say, President uh, Brigham Young followed and said, what Brother Woodruff said, or has said is revelation and will be fulfilled. It's interesting that Elder Woodruff ties these three cities, New York, Boston, Albany, and connects them back to the three cities in 3 Nephi chapter 8. Zarahemla took fire, just like Albany <laughs> would take fire if they don't repent. Moroni would sink into the depths of the sea, just like Boston would be swept in the sea. And then finally, Moroniha uh, being destroyed by some sort of earthquake just like Elder Wood Woodruff says that New York would. Now, as I mentioned before, President Benson made a comment that the Book of Mormon was written for our day. It was written to teach us something, maybe about events that would occur before Christ's coming. Elder Woodruff took 3 Nephi chapter 8 very literally, connecting it to specific cities. These cities, if they don't repent, would run into a number of problems. And it's interesting how the Book of Mormon will possibly foreshadow destruction and things that will occur prior to Christ's coming. 3 Nephi chapter 8, verse 19. It continues describing the destruction. Verse 19 says, And it came to pass that there were thunderings and lightnings, 
and the storms and the tempests and the earthquakes and the earth, uh, or quaking the earth did cease. For behold, they did last for about three hours. Now, I live in Southern California, experienced an earthquake or two in my day. Most earthquakes just happen for a few seconds, at least in my experience. This earthquake was unique among the Nephites. It lasted for the space of three hours. That was almost long enough. You get motion sickness before the uh, earthquake was over. It was during this time that, according to verse number 20, thick darkness covered uh, the face of the land. And it continues to say that the, var- that the, that the darkness was uh, so thick that you could feel the vapors of darkness. This repetition of three hours is significant. It's interesting that according to Mark chapter 15, verse 33, that Christ was on the cross for about three hours. It says in Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Clearly, there is a connection between these natural disasters and uh, the death of the Savior. That there's parallels between the two. In fact, Samuel the Lamanite testified that when the Savior died, these things would take place. There is a direct result. But that's only half of the story. If we read 3 Nephi chapter 8, 9, and 10, it's very clear that the natural disasters not only occurred because of the death of the Savior, but it was because of sin. Take a look at 3 Nephi chapter 8, verse 25. At the end of this, or towards the end of this destruction, there was mourning. It says, and in another place, they, uh, they were heard to cry and mourn, saying, Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day, and had not killed and stoned the prophets and cast them out. Then when our mo- mothers and our fair daughters and our children have been spared. It's interesting that they see a direct result. This uh, ties back very closely back to the Old Testament. It was interesting that any time that the Israelites, as they traveled through uh, the wilderness to the promised land, their 40-day journey, as they followed the prophet Moses, that when things, or when they began to uh, doubt the Lord, doubt the prophet, or complain, a natural disaster would take place. Something would take place that would cause them to repent. And quite often, they made the connection. In one place in the book of Numbers, uh, the Israelites complained against Moses, complaining about the type of food they were eating, that they were tired of this light bread. The manna, day after day, was becoming tiresome. Instantly, poisonous serpents come out of the wilderness and begin to bite them. They go to Moses and realize, we have sinned and we need to repent. It's interesting how these Israelites instantly made the connection that a snake bit them and they realized they needed to repent. I'm not sure the last time I got a flat tire or something bad happened to me. And as the flat tire burst, I thought I need to repent right now. I'm not sure if I'm that quick. These Nephites were the sa- cut from the same cloth. They realized that these natural disasters were a direct result of what was happening internally in their hearts that their testimony and such was beginning to, uh, to, to wane, that they began to sin, and natural disasters occurred. And they made that connection. 
it's interesting as we as we enter in Third Nephi chapter nine, there are sixteen cities mentioned specifically that are being destroyed. During this destruction, Mormon stops to make a make a comment. During Third uh, Nephi, Mormon includes this phrase: "Woe, woe, woe unto this people." Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, except they shall repent, for the devil laugheth and his angels rejoice. This is an interesting comment on the nature of Satan. If we go back into the Old Testament, Satan is not, does not appear very often. In fact, the word Satan doesn't even appear until the book of Job. And the Garden of Enoch just mentions a snake. Satan has been successful in eliminating most of the information about him out of the Old Testament. He doesn't want anyone to know about who he is and what his nature is. Thank goodness for the restored scripture. Take a look at Moses 1.41. How the adversary had removed information out of the text. Moses 1 gives detailed information about the nature of Satan. 3 Nephi chapter 9 verse 2 also gives an insight into the devil's character. That he rejoices, that he laughs at other people's misfortune. As the people uh, reap the consequences of their sin and uh, natural disasters occur, the devil laugheth. It's interesting that we get insights into who the adversary is. And it might give insights into modern, uh, modern society a little bit. It's interesting that most humor, if you turn on any television show and watch a comedy, much of, hu- much of humor is engaged in, or is, is usually at someone else's expense. This demonic attitude of laughing at someone else's mis- misfortune is what the Book of Mormon testifies that what Satan is all about. 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 9, talks about this interesting city, Jacob Ugath, which gives this, great, gives this great title, which was above all the wickedness of the whole earth. That this was the most wicked city at the time. This city is destroyed. But it's interesting that it's almost as if the very most wicked cities are being targeted in this 3 Nephi chapter 8, 9, and 10. They lament in chapter 10, um, because of wickedness, uh, because of wickedness that this has all occurred. Um, and they regret casting out the prophets and stoning those whom the Lord has sent. Um, and then in verse number 12, he says that this destruction is because of the wickedness and the abominations of the people. If we go back to the book of Moses, chapter 7, verses 47 and 48, we have a small snippet of a vision of the prophet Enoch. Enoch sees uh, righteousness being lifted up, and the lamb is slain. He is seen, and he sees in chapter uh, 7, verse 47, the death of the Savior. It's interesting, in chapter 48, uh, the vision continues, and it came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof, saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary, because of the wickedness of my children. He sees a vision of the earth, a voice coming from the bowels of the earth. 
regretting the wickedness of the people on the, on the face of the planet. There is an interesting turn of events in 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 13, where they hear a voice pleading. It says, O all the years spared, because you were more righteous than they, will you not now return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted, that I may heal you? Following this, in 3 Nephi chapter 10, it says that after these things, there was silence uh, in the land for the space of many hours. I don't know if this was shock or what, but everyone became silent. No one spoke. This is an interesting detail. Because they were silent for so long, they were able to hear the commentary on what just occurred. The next chapter, chapter 10, is all about the Savior pleading with them to return, to come to Him. But I wonder if they weren't silent, if they would have heard the voice of the Lord. It was during this time of extreme darkness, this, this feeling of loneliness, that they hear the voice repeated, How oft have I gathered you as a hen gathered their chickens under her wings? This powerful imagery of the Savior wanting to protect, if you would just come to Him. Elder Neil A. Anderson made this comment. He says, I am amazed at the Savior's encircling arms of mercy and love for the repentant. No matter how selfish the forsaken sin, I testify that the Savior is able and eager to forgive our sins. It's interesting that Elder Neil A. Maxwell builds on this idea. He says, The prophet Mormon declared that Jesus waits with open arms to receive us, while the unrepentant and the unconsecrated will never know that ultimate joy described by Mormon, who knew whereof he spoke of being clasped in the arms of Jesus. During this time of darkness and loss, the Savior is constantly calling for the people to come. He repeats, How oft have I gathered you as a hen gathered her chicken under her wings? He wants you to come to him. The chapter concludes with testifying that uh, previous prophets have warned. Yea, the prophet Zenos did testify of these things. And also Zenix spake concerning these things, because they testified particularly concerning us who are the remnant of their seed. Finally, 3 Nephi chapter 10 concludes at the end of chapter or end of the year, or excuse me, and it came to pass it was the ending of the thirty and fourth year. 3 Nephi chapter 10, verse 18. Tying the chapters 8 all the way to chapter 10, as occurring in one full year. Years ago, um, I was working on a graduate degree at Notre Dame University, a predominantly Catholic university. I was working on a degree in theology and had taken a class in world religions where we studied uh, the beautiful aspects of other faith traditions. We studied Hinduism and Buddhism. And it was wonderful to sit as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, among good Catholic friends as we studied Islam. <laughs> it was kind of a surreal experience. After uh, 
a few weeks of study, the professor stopped and says, we have, co- we have covered a number of faith traditions. Do you have any questions? One individual rose their hand and said, uh, yeah, I have a question. Have you ever heard of a book about Jesus coming to America? I was seeing in the class, the only member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the class. And uh, I thought with great interest, what book is this? My mind was thrown off. I was thinking about Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and other religions. And I thought about an additional book about Christ coming to America. My mind didn't even go to the Book of Mormon at that time. (laughs) This uh, person asked the question, he goes, I can't remember the name of it. Does anyone remember the name? The professor smiled and says, I think you're referring to the Book of Mormon. And then he admitted, he says, I don't know much about the Book of Mormon, but I know somebody who does. And he pointed at me. Uh, he says, would you mind standing up and answering a few questions uh, with this class about the Book of Mormon? So I stood up and they began to ask some questions. Now imagine yourself in my shoes with these, when these questions came. Question number one that they asked me is, did Christ really come to America? I could see in their faces that they were at their edge of their seat. And I said, and I simply said, yes, he came to America. The next question was very simply said, um, what did he teach to the people in America? I looked at the class and said, well, I'm not sure if Jesus would, be, would teach anything different no matter where he was at. Jesus loves his children and is going to teach the same thing. He's going to teach them to love their neighbor. He's going to teach them about the temple. He's going to teach them the way back to the Father. As I looked over uh, the class, they all began to nod and said, yeah, I think they kind of agreed with that idea. Their next question threw me off base. I wasn't anticipating this, this line of questioning, but somebody asked, how long was he here? And I choked. I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, they asked us, how long was Christ in America? And I looked at them and I thought to myself, I can't remember. But then I thought they don't know the right answer or the wrong answer. So I kind of bluffed. I said, he was here for a few weeks. <laughs> and then I moved on. That night, my personal scripture study was pretty in-depth. I went back to Third Nephi to try to figure out how long Christ was here. And you know what? I'm still working on that question. I know day one was Third Nephi chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to Third Nephi chapter 17, verse 25. That was day one of his ministry. It was interesting. Uh, the fourth and final question they asked me was this. Did he come before or after the ascension? The ascension referring to what is described in the New Testament as his ascension up to heaven. I simply said afterwards. And because of some theological differences, the questions ended right there. Uh, But I just wonder, what kind of impact knowing that Christ came to the Americas would make on on these people? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland made this comment. He said, These chapters constitute the focal point, the supreme moment in the entire history of the Book of Mormon. It was the manifestation and the decree that had informed and inspired every Nephite prophet. Everyone had talked of him, sung of him, dreamed of him, and prayed for his appearance, but but here he actually was. The day of days... The God who turns every dark night into morning light had arrived. 
these, uh, these ensuing chapters will outline the ministry of the Savior. It's interesting that it begins with a great multitude being gathered together. 3 Nephi chapter 11 verse 1 describes a great multitude. 3 Nephi chapter 17 verse 25 describes 2,500 souls, men, women, and children gathered on this day. And according to verse number 1, they gathered round about the temple. Now, they could have gathered as around the temple some about a year after the major destruction occurred in 3 Nephi 8, 9, and 10. But they gathered, maybe they gathered there for some sort of solace, some sort of quest for peace during very trying times. It might have been since 3 Nephi chapter 10 ends at the very end of the 34th year, it would make sense that chapter 11 began in the 30 and 5th year. The beginning of every year, according to the Old Testament, Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17, Exodus 34, verses 18 through 23, and Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 17, all describe uh, the command for Israelites to come to the temple three times a year. This could have been one of those gathering times. Just like we have general conference or a state conference, we're asked to gather together in a large group. These gatherings were so maybe to renew faith with one another, to come to worship together, to bring your offerings together. This might be describing one of these universal gathering times at the beginning of the new year that the saints were asked to gather and come to the temple. Verse 1 continues, They were showing one to another the great and marvelous change which had taken place. Undoubtedly, they were talking about maybe the changes that took place in uh, the surrounding community. That things were different. That buildings had been destroyed. Maybe over the past year, they were talking about the marvelous change that had taken place over the year. That reconstruction had taken place. That buildings were begun began to to rise up again, the ones that had been destroyed. Cities were beginning to be repopulated. Or this could be talking about something far more spiritual, that the uh, physical changes that occurred might uh, just foreshadow the spiritual and emotional changes that had taken place, that these people were different people from they were a year ago. As they gathered again, and saw old family members, friends, uh, members of the congregation, that they could testify that there was a change in each other's eyes, that they'd become new people. They were discussing the sign that it had occurred. Undoubtedly, that uh, these dramatic changes, the storms, earthquakes, and possibly volcanic activity had caused a conversation that wasn't going to end quickly. Verse number two says they were discussing the sign. If you turn back to Alma chapter 16, verse 20, there is something very interesting, maybe even a hiccup in the Book of Mormon. Listen to this. As saints gather around Alma and ask a a series of questions, and many of the people did inquire concerning the place where the Son of God should come. According to Alma 16, verse 20, that was the question. Where will the Son of God come? The verse continues and changes direction. Notice this. And they were taught that he would appear unto them after the resurrection. Now, that wasn't the answer to their question. The question is, where is he going to appear? 
The answer comes, he'll come after the resurrection. I wonder if the people were told where to gather. Maybe they were told in no uncertain terms to go to the temple. When these destructions occur, go to the temple. Maybe they were told more specifically, go to Bountiful. That's where he'll appear. But they ask the question in Alma 16.20. It's interesting, as you look at the temple today, you see Moroni standing above, in most temples, blowing a horn. In ancient times, that horn was very, very significant. The horn wouldn't have been a straight brass or bronze horn or anything like that. Typically, what was blown was called a shofar. A shofar was a horn of an animal that was bored out to become a horn that makes sound. Now, this horn was blown at two times, typically. One time, every day, about three o'clock, the horn would be blown, calling people to close up their shops and come to the temple. It's interesting that this tradition continues even now in the ancient, uh, excuse me, in the modern uh, Middle East. Periodically, you hear a horn sound, and it's a time for prayer. In ancient Judaism, this was no different. A horn would blow Typically around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, people would close up shop for a short time, come to the temple and pray. If it was at 3 o'clock and you heard that horn, it was a horn giving warning that the city was under attack. I've often looked at the temple and looked up at uh, Moroni standing above there blowing a horn. Knowing his physical occupation was, uh, was, was one of being a general I've often wondered, is he blowing the horn calling us to the temple to come worship, or is he blowing the horn saying that we're under attack? Most temples are built like fortresses, fortresses, a build of marble or, or thick stone, uh, or granite, or some, something along those lines. That when you feel under attack, when you feel the world becoming dark <laughs> and horrible, go to the temple. Even being near to those great edifices, Uh, can bring peace. The text continues with some very interesting words as they gather together talking about changes, either physical changes or spiritual changes. It says, And it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven. Notice how this voice is described. The words are fascinating. And they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. It was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, listen to these terms, nevertheless, it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that had not caused a quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. As describing the voice of the Spirit, they make it very clear that this was not harsh or loud, but some of these other words would have woken you up. Pierce, quake, and burn. It's interesting that these words are used to describe the Holy Ghost. Pierce, getting down to the very center of things. Now, understanding Elder Bednar's comments on 2 Nephi 33. 2 Nephi 33 verse 1 says, The Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost, carrieth God's message unto the hearts of the children of men. It's interesting that Elder Bednar points out, 
he says it doesn't say into the hearts of men, that the Holy Ghost won't force his message in, but the heart needs to be opened. But in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 3, it says that this message did pierce them, did get down to the very center, did enter their very souls. That, in, that implies in some way their hearts were opened. It says that it caused their hearts to burn. Now, burning is this idea that it's causing change. Think what an oven does to a lump of dough. It, ch- it changes that lump of dough into bread. That it caused their hearts to burn or to change, to become new. Elder, uh, Elder Oaks, back in 1997, made this comment. says, what does this burning the bosom mean? Does it, uh, does it need to be a feeling of caloric heat, like the burning produced by combustion? If that is the meaning, I have never had the burning in the bosom. This, and so what he's saying is, this does not mean that it burns or chars you. <laughs> but there's an idea that the Holy Ghost is changing you. It is not necessarily caloric heat in that you're going to cause to sweat or anything like that. Asking a, a class of young students, I asked them, how do you feel the Holy Ghost? I had one student that made a comment says, when I feel the Holy Ghost, I feel warm. The next hand that went up says, when I feel the Holy Ghost, I feel chills. Another student raises his hand and goes, when I feel the Holy Ghost, I feel confident. It's interesting that all these words describe almost a different feeling, but it's all the same. And how the Holy Ghost tailors their message. Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 85, verse 6, it says, Yea, thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierceth all things. Do you hear that similarity to 3 Nephi 11? And it oft times maketh my bones to quake when it maketh manifest. It's interesting that when the Holy Ghost comes, sometimes, if we allow it, can hit down to the very marrow of us, the very center of us. Despite all this, according to verse number four, it says, And it came to pass, they heard the voice, they understood it not. President David O. McKay and and President Harold B. Lee both retold a story that occurred years before. On October 15th of 1915, a young man, the son of Bishop John Wells, passed away in a freight car accident. Bishop Wells was in the presiding bishop, bishopric of the church in 1915. Him and his wife took the loss of their son pretty hard. Their adult son had passed away before his time. And over the next few days and weeks, especially Sister Wells was inconsolable. In fact, because of the anguish, they feared for her health. One day after the funeral, Sister Wells was laying on her bed in a state of mourning when her son appeared to her, the son who had passed away, and said, Mother, do not mourn, do not cry, I am all right. He then began to describe the situation that caused his death. He made a comment that he signaled to the train operator to move forward. The train began to move and he began to run along the side of the train to catch up and was going to jump aboard. But he tripped on a route and fell underneath the train. And the train took his life. He said that his, uh, he told his mother, he, uh, 
He told her that as soon as he had realized that he was in another place, he had tried to reach his father, but he could not. His father was so busy with the details of his office and work that he could not respond to the promptings. Therefore, he had come to his mother. Um, he then continue on. He says, he then said, tell father that all is well with me and that I don't want you to, war- to mourn anymore. This is an interesting story that sometimes we miss the Holy Ghost, not because we're doing bad things, but we're busy just doing things. Bishop Wells was not a bad man. He was working on uh, the books for the church, taking care of the finances. He was doing his duty. He was doing his calling, but he was so engrossed with that one job that the whisperings from beyond the veil, that he couldn't hear them. And I wonder if these saints, they're so excited to see friends and family gathered at the temple that they missed the, the, the whisperings of the Holy Ghost as the Holy Ghost tried to give this really awesome message. Verse 5 continues on. And again, the third time, listen to this. They did hear the voice. They did open their ears to hear it and their eyes towards heaven, towards the sound thereof. It's interesting that the implication is that their hearts are open, that their eyes are open, verse 5, and that their ears are open, verse 5. It's interesting that Isaiah's message in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, was to do this very thing, was to help the saints keep their eyes, ears, and hearts open. I wonder how different that message is from President Nelson today as he's continually asking us to hear him. We have messages from the Quorum of the Twelve on different ways in which they personally hear him. Maybe one of these messages you can personally relate to. Because too often in our lives, not because we're doing bad, but because we're doing good and just not listening, we miss the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Verse 6 says, Behold, the third time they did understand the voice. I wish in my, in my life I could be like those Nephites, that it only takes three times for the Holy Ghost to whisper to me before I can hear the message. I relate too often to Amulek, as he mentions in Alma chapter 10, verse 6, Nevertheless, I did harden my heart, for I was called many times, and I would not hear. Sometimes I relate too much to Amulek. There's another funny experience that occurs about three times being warned and not listening. And that comes from Oliver Cowdery in The Messenger and Advocate from October 1835. Oliver Cowdery relates the experience Joseph had when he tried to get the plates out of the hill Cumorah for the first time. If you remember in Joseph Smith's history, he was simply told he was forbidden to take the plates. But Oliver Cowdery adds some detail. Um, It says, On attempting to take possession of the record, a shock was produced upon Joseph Joseph Smith's system by an invisible power which deprived him in a measure of his natural strength. He desisted for an instance and then made another attempt, but was more sensibly shocked than before. He therefore made a third attempt with an increased exertion. When his strength failed him more than either the former times, Without premeditating, he exclaimed, Why can I not obtain this book? He then heard a voice, Because you have not kept the commandments of the Lord, answered a voice within a seeming short distance. He looked into his astonishment. There stood the angel who had previously given directions concerning the matter. 
I've often wondered why Moreau and I didn't warn him after the first time or after the second time. Sometimes we get so focused on a matter, we don't stop to listen to heaven. The voice that comes next is the voice of the Father. A short introduction to introduce his beloved Son, which simply says, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. This phrase is interesting. Beloved Son is the same title he uses when describing the beginning of the Savior's ministry at his baptism. In Matthew, it says, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The word in Greek for the word beloved is the same one that that is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek Septuagint, to describe Isaac as a beloved son, or as one who is beloved when God instructs Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This phrase, beloved son, not only denotes a deep love, but also describes the journey not only Isaac would need to go through, symbolically foreshadowing the Savior's personal ministry of love that would bring him down to the depths, but ultimately bring him back better than before. Despite the introduction from the Father, despite the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, the Nephite saints still don't understand. Verse number 8 says, And it came to pass that as they, uh, as they understood, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven. And behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe. And he came down and stood in the midst of them. And the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him. And they durst not open their mouths, even one to another. And they wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that appeared unto them. Despite the introduction, they still don't understand who is standing right before him, before them. So, in verses 10 and 11, the Savior gives his introduction. His resume, as it were. It's interesting to point out that different qualities that he wants to teach about himself as he reveals his personal resume. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world. This points back to a number of scriptures, but one that I think is appropriate is a Benedi's testimony in Mosiah 16.9. When he testifies to the Savior, he says, He is the light and the life of the world, yea, a light that is endless, that can never be darkened, Yea, and also the life, which is endless, and there can be no more death. The Savior continues to describe a very interesting phrase. He says, I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me. This bitter cup is uh, a a repeating symbol that occurs over and over again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Book of Mormon, throughout the New Testament, and even in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you remember back in Isaiah 51, Jehovah, through his prophet, tells the people, Awake and awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Notice the cup in Isaiah 51 is called the cup of his fury. Apparently, the symbolism is of this, that each of us carry our own cup. And in that cup contains 
the consequences of each good and bad action that we've ever had. We'd love to dump out that cup because some of us have consequences of sin that's, that's, uh, carry, that we carry around in our cup. Notice how Isaiah 51, 17 continues. He says that the cup of his fury, apparently the things in the Israelites' cup was making God upset. Thou has drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them, and wrung them out. The dregs are those chunky things that float in the liquid, right? In fact, when someone makes wine or grape juice, Dregs are sharp crystals that will form in the, in, the, in the beverage. So apparently, this uh, the consequences of their actions, the things that are in their cup, is beginning to crystallize. The warning is, everyone comes the day where they have to drink out of their own cup. In Ezekiel 20, 23, 33, it calls it the cup of astonishment and desolation. But the promise is given in Isaiah 51, 21. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord and thy God, that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. If you turn to the Savior... You hand the consequences, everything that is in your cup, over to the Savior. In the New Testament, as the Savior walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, he began to pray. He says, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup that contains the consequences of sin of all of God's people. It continues on in Matthew 26, 42. It says, He went again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, drink it, thy will be done. The cup that is called the cup of trembling, the cup of desolation, the cup of astonishment, the cup, uh, the bitter cup, is becomes part of the Savior's resume of what He has done for us. He's brought light, He's brought life, and He's taken your cup, your bitter cup. It's interesting that the last taste in the Savior's mouth, before He passed away, passed out of mortality, is described as being vinegar, a liquid that is extremely bitter, that when you taste it, causes many to tremble. Doctrine Covenants 19, verses 16 through 19 says, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. If they would, re- if they would repent, they must not s- suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even the grace of all, to tremble because of pain. Remember the cup is called the cup of trembling? And to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink of the and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. It's interesting that this is a main part of his resume, that he says, I am Jesus Christ, the light and the life of the world. I have drank the cup. I wonder if it could also be worded, he has taken your cup. I often think of this part of the resume 
in 3 Nephi 11.11, when I take the sacrament, that it's almost like I'm trading cups. I'm taking my cup full of sin and awfulness and handing it over, and he gives me a cup that's pure and clear and clean. I feel like it's a pretty good trade. In 3 Nephi 11, verse 14, he continues, and invites each of the Nephites, Arise, come forth unto me, that ye might thrust your hands into my side, and also they may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and my feet. It's interesting that this is a reversal of what he invites the 11 apostles to do in John chapter 20. He asked them to feel the nail prints in his hands and then his side. One scholar suggested that the, that the um, Quorum of the Twelve in the Old World were well aware of what crucifixion looked like and what it did to a person. But among the Nephites, he asked them to come and feel the, the, the wound in his side, which would have been a killing wound, a wound that would have gone underneath his ribs. This would have been deeply intimate to come up that close to the Savior and to feel the bare flesh on, this, on his side, to feel the wound that killed. Among the Nephites, they'd be most interested in the wound that was beneath his rib. Among Peter and James and John and Thomas and the other apostles, they would have been interested in seeing the nail prints in his hands to identify him as the one that was on the cross. In 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 15, they came up one by one. This was a personal invitation. Maybe you've done this yourself, that pulled out a calculator and uh, punched in some numbers, that if there was 2,500 people and each of them took five seconds to, kneel, to feel the nail prints in his hands, feet, and side, this event would have taken almost three and a half hours for each of them to take a turn. Now, I've loved to speculate at this, at this juncture, Would the Savior let you leave without giving you a knowing look? Maybe a word of encouragement. I wonder if he pulled certain Nephites aside just briefly and said, I was with your mother just the other day. She's passed away, but she wants you to know that she loves you. I don't think very many, or I don't think the Savior would let very many slip through his fingers without giving him a word of encouragement. The text never indicates this, but I wonder, maybe they just went up in reverent silence, or possibly the Savior gave them words of encouragement. Immediately after this, the Nephite saints scream Hosanna. They cried with one accord saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. The word Hosanna is an interesting phrase in Hebrew, Hoshia Na, which is two words that are kind of crammed together. It literally means, please, I pray, save, or save, I plead. The essential meaning of please save is used in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, usually in 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 places where they are requesting some sort of salvation or they need to be saved in some way. 
according to Psalm uh, 118, verse 25, this is just one example, that this is often used in, in hymnic uh, text to request uh, salvation. What an appropriate time. They all know for sure that they are standing before the Savior. They've become witnesses. They have seen him. They have felt him. They have heard his voice and now stand as witnesses of him. And they declare that they need salvation. In 3 Nephi eleven eighteen, it says, And it came to pass that he spake unto Nephi, calls him by name. I wonder if he, I am sure he knew every Nephite's name in that crowd, but he calls Nephite's name specifically. I was in a state conference not long ago, and our visiting authority, Elder Zwick, who's now an emeritus member of the 70, made a statement that I thought was was just profound. In his closing testimony, he made this comment. He says, the Savior knows you. He even knows your nickname. That just resonated with me. He not only knows your name, but he knows the details in your life. He knows maybe a loving nickname that he would love to to use and to share. Nicknames are used by insiders, those who know you well, right? And I love that statement. He knows your name. He even knows your nickname. For the next few verses, the the Savior is going to outline some things. He's going to outline authority. Who is a legal representative, a true administrator of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and identifies Nephi as one of these who will stand as as prophet? He will then talk about the mode and and manner of a ritual washing. Now, when the saints came into, into, uh, into Utah, the First Presidency asked many of them in the 1850s to be rebaptized. And maybe this was, uh, or excuse me, in, in Utah, that was uh, 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 a manner in which they wanted to recommit themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe the Savior is having them all be rebaptized as the beginning of a new dispensation. But they begin this ritual washing to show the saints what happens to an individual physically as they're washed can happen to you spiritually as we invite the Holy Ghost into our life. This symbolic ritual washing reoccurs after every time we worthily partake of the sacrament and invite the Holy Ghost into our lives. He wanted to publicly recognize who was an authorized representative. He wanted to show how to become clean. And finally, he wanted to... um, Avoid any type of disputation among them. Apparently, if you look back at the Book of Mormon, disputations and arguments arise over and over again. In fact, this type of disputation begins back in 35 chapter 8. That's where the story begins. This, come follow me, is with a disputation. He wants to show that the adversary wants to divide people through argument. And then he skillfully shows how he, the Father, and the Holy Ghost are one, and invites us all to become little children. The idea that uh, if you've been around little children for any length of time, they learn incredibly fast. They grow and change incredibly fast. He invites us all to do the same. 
to become different, to become more mature, start as children and begin to grow, to learn, but to become unified. Now, I hope some of these insights will be helpful in your personal study. Do you remember where we began with all this? With Elder Maxwell's comment that the Book of Mormon is like a vast mansion. I hope in your personal study, as you study 3 Nephi chapter eight, verse, or chapters 8 through 11, that you'll go slowly, that you'll go through this vast mansion that we refer to as the Book of Mormon and stop in one of these chapter rooms and just study. Find things that you find, uh, or find doctrines and principles that heaven is trying to teach to you. Find an opportunity this week not only to find these doctrines, but to share them with someone that you love. This is my invitation to you, and I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.